Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Welcome back, everyone. Today, Nina and I are going to be discussing Gennaro, Jerry, and Julo. The title of this episode is a quote from Jerry caught on the wiretap at Raymond Patriarca's office. Quote, they're after me like a fucking animal, end quote. The they he was referring to was the IRS, who at the time was trying to build a case against him. I'll say up front that I have a bit of a soft spot for Jerry. Back in the early 70s, my dad and I came home to find a man in the front yard taking pictures of our home. Of course, dad was less than cordial, having no idea who this stranger was. The man with the camera proceeded to tell him that our home was being auctioned off the next day. Dad couldn't understand what he was telling him. The house was in my Uncle Brendan's name at that time. Like the majority of criminals, I'd assume, nothing was in Dad's name. Brendan was a degenerate gambler and took a mortgage on the house and never said a word or paid a dime. Dad needed 25 grand by the end of the day or bye-bye house. Dad went straight to Danny Angelo, one of Jerry's brothers, who then took him to Jerry. By the end of the day, the mortgage was paid off. At the beginning of season two, we'll get to why Jerry extended that favor to Dad. Even I have to say Jerry wasn't all bad. He did one other good deed later in the 1970s, but you'll have to wait to season two for that story. Really, my gripe with Jerry was the gossip and the complaining. I blame Raymond for setting the tone. Well, he was the boss. In this episode, we'll only be covering up to 1969. For any of our listeners who might be new, season one is mainly focused on the 1950s and the 1960s, but we sometimes go back to the early 20th century to give background about the people and events we're discussing. There's been a lot written about Jerry over the years, so we're going to try to cover some of the lesser known things. With that being said, let's start with Jerry's genealogy. Gennaro Joseph Angulo was born on March 20th, 1919 in Boston to Cesar and Giovannina Jenny Angulo. His father was from Bari and his mother was from Avellino. They met and married in Boston in 1915. Jerry was the third of seven kids, all boys except one girl. Jerry enlisted in the Navy at the beginning of World War II in 1941 and served four years mainly in the Pacific. His brother Frank, Frank was in the Merchant Marines during World War II. Another brother, Mike, enlisted in the Army in 1951. Unlike most of the people who were profiled so far, Jerry did not have an extensive record before his rise to power. In fact, it's said that prior to the war, he wanted to become a criminal attorney. I believe that the fact that he only worked with his brothers and kept a tight inner circle in his early days helped keep him on the streets. I agree that he was wise to keep it in the family, in particular his older brother, Nicky, and three of his younger brothers, Francesco, Frank, Donato, Danny, and Michaela, Mike, and Julo. The first arrest I could find was in July of 1941 for registering bets. He was fined $100. In June of 1947, he was fined $100 again this time for illegal dog race betting. He and several associates rented a house near the Dighton dog track. A second floor window of the house gave them a view to the scoreboard. By keeping field glasses trained on the scoreboard, the men were able to get the results of the races sooner. According to the authorities, the men were making bets on the races after the races were finished, but before the results had reached their competitors who weren't on site. An additional charge of conspiracy was lodged. That same year, Jerry married Anne Suzanne Rakowskis, the daughter of Lithuanian immigrants and a department store model. 
Every article you read about Jerry that mentions his first wife says that her first surname was Anderson. It was the name she used when she was modeling before she married Jerry. Dragging Rakowskis around when she was going on a go-see must have been a nightmare, so she picked Anderson. I can't say anything. In my younger days, I contemplated using an easier surname, too. Anyhow, in September of 1947, Jerry, his brother Frank, and Michael Arena were arrested on lottery and gambling charges. It was said that they were taking $20,000 worth of action a day via phone lines that were plugged into neighbors' lines. The three of them were caught fleeing down a fire escape. I can't. <laughs> In 1950, Jerry and at least two of his brothers were brought in for questioning by the FBI about the Brinks case. Who wasn't brought in for questioning? Well, you'd probably have an easier time listing out who wasn't questioned. Remember that Special Agent Keogh later claimed in court that they'd interviewed something like 6,000 people over the course of the case. By 1950, the Angelos were reportedly the biggest bookies in the North End. They used a variety store at 95 Prince Street as their front. It was across the street from the restaurant deli that their parents ran. The restaurant was apparently a legitimate enterprise, unlike the store, which never had anything on the shelves to sell. They banked their own bets and would not accept large bets, particularly if that bet was a long shot. Their activities were reportedly only confined to bookmaking, and they had no interest in other criminal activities. By 1951, they had expanded again, buying up 45% of the lottery ticket called The Local and changed the name to The Pilgrim. In 1954, they tried to buy out an unnamed bookie for $75,000, but somebody higher up, probably Johnny Williams, told them to back off. On May 11, 1956, Jerry's brother Danny Angulo was brought in to the Quincy Police Department for questioning. The police had received an anonymous tip that Danny was linked to Billy Aggie's bank robbery fiasco that had taken place earlier in the day. Jerry came to bail his brother out, and the feds took the opportunity to question Jerry about Billy and his associates as well. A two-for-one deal. Jerry acknowledged that he was acquainted with Sonny D'Aferio, who was a frequent visitor at the Monte Cristo on Carver Street, which was owned by the Angelo brothers. He also stated that Sonny interceded for his brother in obtaining a bartender's job for him at the Riverway Cafe on South Huntington Ave, which was also owned and operated by the Angelos. Obviously, nothing ever came of that fishing expedition. You all know that Billy went away and the cops had to release Sonny for the time being. By 1958, the Angelos were described as the biggest money lenders in the city of Boston. In May of 1960, an informant told the FBI that the Angelo brothers were the only ones looking to expand their operations. They had been contacting every agent possible to get them to enter their employ. The other bookies in the area were keeping a low profile due to the recent crackdown by the authorities against illegal gambling. Just a few months later, Danny and Frank Angelo were arrested in a bookmaking raid. The newspaper headline read, 1,000 Jeer Police Raid on Boston Bookies. Both Frank and Danny assaulted the arresting officers with phone books, and the cops were attacked by a dog. By the time the police hit the street, the crowd was screaming, Go to South Boston! Get out of the North End, coppers! Go home! Get out! Let's touch the untouchables! The police issued a statement after the raid. It was the most blatant disrespect for law and order that I have ever witnessed. But that's how it was in those days. The West End and the North End were especially tight. I told the story back in episode eight about my grandma being the lookout during the dice games that my Uncle Danny and some of the other boys would run in the doorways and the alleyways. 
On March 4, 1961, the Nahant home of Jerry's burnt to the ground. The Cary Mansion, as it was known, was valued at $30,000 plus an additional $5,000 in contents. His wife and kids were in Florida at the time, and Jerry was AWOL. In July of 61, Jerry was described in an FBI 302 as, quote, a gambler and wealthy Boston Shylock, unquote. He was said to be the owner of the American Finance Corporation located on Hanover Street. It had been incorporated on January 17, 1934, so it was likely created by Joe Lombardo and his crew. American Finance was wholly owned by the Northeast Investment Company. Northeast was owned by the Community Finance Company, which had been incorporated in September of 1957. In 1960, Jerry purchased $20,000 worth of stock in American Finance from Joe Modica. Later that year, he sold his stock for $50,000. Nice profit. Not too shabby. One of the officers of Jerry's business businesses was Al Horrigan. To the best of our knowledge, he was an informant number BS769 and was reporting as early as 1959. He would continue as such into the early 70s. Dennis Condon was his handler. Horrigan claimed to be an attorney, although other than one document from some obscure publication, there's no evidence of that. However, decades later, his name would appear in the Senate hearings with attorney in front of it. Al will be making an appearance at the beginning of season two with no shortage of twists, turns, and intrigue. Another officer and business associate was Arthur Hamill. He also ran Commercial Producers, Inc. for Jerry. They made jingles and greeting cards. Jerry went into great detail describing to Raymond how he made money from that right down to the salesman's commissions. Spreading cheer across the land with jingles and greeting cards. All right, let's jump forward to 1962. An airtel was issued from the Boston FBI field office to D.C. on July 25, 1962. Quote, a new informant has been developed. This informant appears to have good insight and close contacts with the Angelo operations, end quote. I cannot figure out who this was, and it drives me nuts. Me too. In August, the Boston field office sent a memorandum to D.C. reporting that the IRS agent Edgerly received a payoff of an unknown amount to bring the tax investigation against the Angelo brothers to an end. The following week, Hoover corresponded with the SAC in Boston, informing him that another agent received $3,000 to make the case disappear. This information was obtained from a recorded conversation between Jerry and Raymond on August 3rd. The crazy thing is that in 1975, when the Senate committee was investigating the bribes, the IRS informed them that they had no record of a case against Nikki Angelo. It was in the newspapers. I mean, talk about covering your own ass. Four months later, Hoover authorized microphone surveillance of Jerry's office at Jay's Lounge in Boston. In a memorandum dated November 27, 1962, Hoover requested of the Boston SAC, quote, advise your progress in connection with the installation at Jay's Lounge, 255 Tremont Street, Boston, end quote. On January 9, 1963, the FBI officially commenced the wiretap surveillance on Jerry. The FBI assigned the number BS-856-C asterisk as the reference code for the gypsy wire. Special Agent Dennis Condon received a $150 cash reward for his contributions to the establishment of a, quote, highly confidential source of information, unquote, of interest to the Bureau in the criminal field regarding Jerry and Julo on February 21st. The following month, the wire picked up Jerry speculating that Ronnie Cassessa might be an informant. 
Ronnie will be covered in our episode about Teddy Deegan. All that speculation must have stressed Jerry out as he, Peter Lamoni, and two others headed to Miami in early March. On their first day there, Jerry and Peter ran into a Lamister who owed him $2,500. Jerry asked for the money, and the guy gave him a wise answer. So what did Jerry do? He had Peter take the guy just outside of the lobby and, quote, knock him dead. The Lamister event evidently was connected to the owners of the Fountain Blue where they were staying. The following day, an unnamed man arrived at Jerry's room at one o'clock in the morning and began flushing the toilet and running the faucet before telling Jerry that Jerry had heat on him and the locals were looking to pick him up. He suggested that Jerry switch hotels. Jerry's response was classic. I've been at the Fountain Blue long before they ever even thought of Florida. And with that, he continued his working vacation. (laughs) In October of 1963, Jerry was named during a Senate hearing. They referenced his FBI and BPD file stating that he was accused of gambling, shylocking, burglary, theft, and larceny. Following that hearing, BPD Commissioner Edmund McNamara named Angelo as the underboss of New England. Jerry was described as the man on the scene in Boston and a quiet operator who shunned publicity. The following day, the Boston Globe ran a piece after checking to see if Jerry had a record in the city of Medford where he was residing. The police told them that he had no record, but that he wasn't living at home as his wife had taken a restraining order out on him. The neighbors said that they had seen him coming and going in a limo with a two-car escort. They all claimed to have never met him, but described his wife as a good-looking blonde with two well-dressed kids. But Jerry wasn't suffering. He was developing three properties in Nahant, one of which would become his new home. Later that October, Nikki Angelo was charged with assaulting an 18-year-old from Chelsea and held on $100,000 bail. The boy was dating Nikki's 13-year-old daughter, and he warned him to stay away from her. The boy didn't listen and caught two beatings from Nikki, one resulting in 13 stitches to close a head wound. The case went to trial, and Nikki's attorney was F. Lee Bailey. Nikki was found guilty, and Judge Felix Forte sentenced him to one year in Deer Island. In November, five shots from another car shattered the windows and flattened the left front tire of Jerry's limo while it was parked on Huntington Ave near the Angelo's Riverway Cafe at about five in the morning. The newspaper headline read, Angelo's Limousine Riddled with Bullets. A green sedan with several men in it was seen speeding away towards Brookline just after the shooting. Between Jack's heist, Pro, and Georgia McLaughlin, how many green sedans were spotted fleeing the scene of a crime? My theory is that it was Sonny D'Affario, Mello Merlino, and Pro Lerner. Mello's Texaco and Tire was up the street. The three of them were hanging around together, and Pro lived in Brookline and had a green car. Hey, it must have been a superstition thing, you know, look at the Irish or something. Although Pro wasn't Irish, so who knows. But that green sedan will be making several more appearances throughout the season. The feds were all over the shooting. A 302 from Boston dated just days later reported that Jerry could be heard on his wiretap saying that he had no idea who had shot up his car. He was not present when the shooting took place. He'd left the car about 90 minutes before the shooting. The Fed speculated, quote, it is possible the shooting was done by some person who mistakenly believed Angelo was still in the car or done as a warning, unquote. To add credence to their theory, they noted that the day before the shooting, Salvatore Iacconi had complained to Patriarca that Angelo on the previous night had visited Iacconi in the company of others and verbally abused him, calling him an obscene name on four different occasions 
during an argument over the proprietorship of the Indian Meadow Country Club, a joint enterprise of Iacone and Anjulo's. Iacone told Raymond that he had been about to kill Anjulo for insulting him, but that had restrained himself because of the possibility that such an act would indicate disrespect for Raymond. In reply, Raymond told Iacone that he should have killed Angelo at the time the name was called, and if Angelo ever called Iacone the obscene name again, Iacone had the right to kill Angelo on the spot. No questions asked. Every time I read a 302 and come across Raymond's etiquette rules, my head spins, my Plantagenet blood boils. The perceived slights and petty offenses are ludicrous. Tell me about it. It's crazy. Who didn't send a drink? Who didn't come to the table? Who was in the restaurant first? And so on. As we know, Raymond loved to dispense with his wisdom and advice whenever the opportunity arose, and Jerry too. He told Raymond to be leery of people wearing hearing aids as they could be listening devices for the authorities. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall during that sermon. A few days late after Jerry's car was shot up, his wife dropped her support demanding court. In December the same year, the SAC in Boston sent a memorandum to Hoover. It was reported that Jerry was at Raymond's complaining that the DA, Garrett Byrne, upset the deal that he had made in connection with the sentencing of his brother. Jerry went on to explain that although he didn't have a direct deal with Judge Forty, the judge had agreed to show leniency if Nikki gave up his accomplices in the assault case. Jerry claimed that the DA pressured the judge to withdraw the offer. It wasn't long before Jerry started making the journey to Raymond's in a pickup truck. He thought no one would know it was him. Like someone wouldn't recognize him when he got out of the car. And talk about being conspicuous, a dapper silver-haired guy slipping out of a pickup truck. Come on. But, you know, this brings up another one of the 302 mysteries. In addition to the wiretap, there were agents observing, photographing, and running license plates on everyone in and out of the coinomatic. How could anyone be listed as unnamed in those transcripts? I've been asking myself the same question. I guess the feds didn't feel it was important enough. Anyhow, later that month, it was revealed to the public that the IRS was investigating Jerry and Nikki for income tax evasion. The Huntington Realty Trust and Parkway Enameling had been ordered to hand over their books in September, but neither Jerry nor the books had appeared by the deadline. The IRS asked the court to cite the Angelos for contempt, but Nikki couldn't appear as he was residing in Deer Island, so the contempt charge against him was withdrawn. In March of 1964, a judge ordered Jerry once again to hand over the records for his businesses. Jerry's attorney tried to have the order overturned, but his plea was rejected. A second appeal was made, which dragged out until the end of the year. In December, the court reissued the order and convened a grand jury. Six of the Angelo brothers were subpoenaed to testify. When Jerry arrived, the press was there and waiting. He turned to the cameras and said, if you're going to take a picture, take my good side. He really did love flirting with the journos. No question about that, and I'm sure he loved the descriptions of his attire. But the IRS agents weren't such admirers. On May 24, 1964, Jerry, Peter Lamoni, and Billy Cresta assaulted IRS agent Henry Fadaro in the Old Timers Club in the North End. In January 1965, he, Peter Lamoni, and Billy Cresta were arrested for assaulting the IRS agent. They were later found guilty in order to pay $1,000 each in fines and served one month in federal prison. After Jerry got out, Joe Modica, a.k.a. Don Pepino, bought Jerry to an unnamed man to help with his tax case. 
Jerry told the man that the only way to fix his tax problem was to go straight to D.C. and skip the appellate court. He blamed the two agents working his task, tax case for all of his problems, since without them, there wouldn't have been a case. Jerry was highly skeptical that this unnamed individual would be any help to him. But Jerry's life wasn't all court appearances and trips to Providence. In July that year, he went to the Coliseum to investigate a guy who approached Nicky Gizzo for asking Gizzo to make him. According to Jerry, the unnamed man wasn't just a moron, but an imbecile. Jerry said the guy stood up in front of 130 people in the restaurant and did the twist. Jerry invited him down to the club and plied him with alcohol in an effort to get him to talk. After the fifth drink, his story was consistent. Raymond was pissed off at Jerry for participating in such nonsense and told him that even if it was a joke, a member shouldn't become involved in such stuff. But Jerry also got Joe Lombardo involved. Lombardo was heated because he felt that Nicky Gizzo was still under his jurisdiction, but Jerry disagreed. Well, it didn't stop there. Ronnie Cassesso was there while the solo twist performance was going on, and he told Johnny Photo, who then told Joe Burns. Burns decided to tell Raymond. Photo also wanted to complain to Raymond, but not about the Coliseum incident, but rather that Jerry wasn't treating him well. Photo had Burns relay the message to Raymond. Photo was the former owner of the Peppermint Lounge in Miami Beach and was supposedly under Jerry's supervision in Boston. Raymond told Jerry that he was an intelligent individual, but there, there was one thing that he'd have to learn if he wanted to get ahead in the organization, and that was not to act like Jimmy Cagney, but be able to, quote, give an individual hell in the same tone of voice as he did if he praised him. He told Jerry that if he was able to accomplish this knack, he'd go a long way in the organization. But Raymond's biggest concern was that the story would make its way to the guys in New York. <laughs> it's nonstop drama like a damn Turkish soap opera. In September of 1964, Jerry and Raymond attempted to make a donation to Francis Bellotti's gubernatorial campaign. At that time, Bellotti was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Bellotti flatly refused, so Jerry and Raymond went to Patrick Sonny McDonough, who served on the governor's council. McDonough allegedly funneled some of the money to Bellotti's campaign through the names of various donors. In the meantime, Jerry was trying to refinance the Indian Meadow Country Club, so in February of 65, he concocted a scheme to sell 51 shares and 49 shares to two unnamed individuals who in turn would use the stock as collateral to obtain bank loans. During that same conversation between Jerry and Raymond, Jerry explained the circumstances surrounding the assault of the IRS agent. Ray Raymond was more concerned about the squid shortage, though, and he was engaged in lengthy conversations with the Colombo family about it. You know, I'd like to think that squid was a code for something, but I suspect it really was about squid. Two IRS agents who had taken bribes to drop the Angelo tax case were arrested on January 8th, 1965. They were both fired and brought to trial. In May, Jerry was back in court with his IRS case. Once again, the court ordered him to turn over the books for Huntington Realty. The following month, a blast occurred just 40 hours after Jerry, Frank, Mike, and Danny, through the Huntington Realty Trust, took a loan from the Rosario Realty Trust, whose trustee was Rosario Lamoni. The property was vacant, so no one was injured, but the doors were blown off, making it impossible to tell if there was a break-in. The mystery of the blast was never solved. On June 16, 1966, the body of former boxer Rocco DeSiglio was found in a wooded area in Topsfield, Massachusetts, in his 1964 Ford Thunderbird. He had been shot three times in the back of the head with a 45 caliber handgun. 
One bullet went straight through his head and passed through the windshield. There were four suspects, including Jerry. On August 6, 1967, he was charged with murder before the fact and conspiracy to commit murder, and he was arrested on August 9th. Of course, Jerry's wardrobe was the highlight of the news articles describing him as looking like a successful businessman in a dark suit, white shirt, and blue and black striped tie. Well, he was a successful businessman, amongst other things. As for the case against Jerry, the main witness was none other than Joseph Barboza, perjurer extraordinaire. Joe Valero and Ronnie Chisholm were Jerry's and his co-defendants, Bernard Zena, Mar- Mario Lepore, and Richard DeVincent's attorneys. It was Bolero's mission to tear Barboza's testimony apart. Bolero accused Barboza in court of, quote, legally trying to kill these four men, unquote. When Barboza took the stand, he stated that Angelo had ordered the hit on DeSiglio. He went on to say that the last time he saw DeSiglio alive was on June 15, 1965, and that he left with Zinna and DeVincent. The next day, he said he met the two of them who said that they killed DeSiglio on orders from Jerry. Under questioning by Ronnie Chisholm, Barboza said that he and Chico Amico went to see Jerry several days after the murder. Barboza claimed that Jerry told him that it was better that they took care of DeSiglio themselves rather than involving the office, referring to Raymond. He continued to testify that DeVincent was running around acting like a big shot because he killed DeSiglio. He said he knew DeVincent and Zena from when they had done time together in the Concord Reformatory in 1950. Under questioning, Barboza said that the first person he called after hearing that DeSiglio had been killed was Officer Fawcett, but that he made the call anonymously. Officer Fawcett confirmed Barboza's statement. Well, wasn't he a good Samaritan? No, he was a fucking lying lunatic. Fawcett testified that he knew Barboza and his reputation and said that he and his fellow officers filled out special forms every time they saw Barboza and his associates. Barboza was frequently observed with Nikki Femia, Patrick Fabiano, and Chico Amico, who had been killed the year before. When asked if he had observed DeSiglio in East Boston the night he was killed, Fawcett said he did not. The trial continued through the middle of January of 1968. All four of the men were acquitted. Later in the month, the prosecutor, Pino, resigned. He claimed that he had made the decision before the start of the trial. Yeah, okay. Not only was Jerry free from jail, but his wife was free from him. In September, she was finally granted a divorce on the grounds of cruel and abusive treatment. She was given custody of their two children and awarded $600 monthly support. In October of 1969, Jerry's daughter, Thais, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Thais Suzanne, passed away while she was at nursing school. She was just 21 years old. There have been many rumors as to the cause of death, including murder, but nothing ever developed. Just two weeks later, Jerry was arrested as an accessory after the fact in the VA robbery that had occurred in 1965. He was released but ordered not to leave the state. Now you're going to have to wait to find out the reason why and how he avoids conviction. And don't cheat by looking in the newspaper archives because you won't find the answer. Barboza's attempt to frame Jerry for DeSiglio's murder would ju- be, just be one of many setups that Barboza would concoct in his effort to take revenge on the mafia. We'll get more into that in our next episode when we profile him. Really, we didn't want to cover him, but he is a part of the story of more than a few of the men in Dad's circle, including Teddy Deegan, so we don't have much of a choice. Thank you all for listening. Please share an episode with someone you know. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen, please. Bye. Bye.
Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.